And basically, I answered the question, why are we doing this? And I drew our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, which basically says, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the likeness of that glory. So as we come to know the greatness and the, the, the perfections of God, and as we love them and we savor them and we meditate upon them, it actually transforms us. So there's a very practical aim here, and that is, that is that we are changed by an ever-increasing vision of who God is. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. And this morning, uh, the message is based on a number of texts throughout the Bible, the first of which is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17. Now you can try and follow as I skip through, or you can just mark down the citation like 1 Timothy 3.17 and look them up later. You may not, unless you're a really good Bible flipper, um, you may not be able to follow. But the first text is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, uh, 1 Timothy 1.17, excuse me. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Um, so you can turn there. And then I'm going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to, to open our eyes more and more to the glory of God. Father, I, I know and I believe wholeheartedly that your greatest desire, your greatest passion is to show your glory and have your people love it, savor it, and enjoy it. I know, Lord, that your main objective is to display your greatness that we may feast upon it, and in feasting upon it, we might be changed. Father, it is my prayer that by your Spirit, whom you have given, so that we might be led into truth and understand more fully the glory of God, I pray that you would help us to soar up into the peaks of your greatness. And expand our minds, expand our hearts, expand our lives with an ever-increasing vision of the massiveness of who you are. And that in doing so, we might find ourselves motivated and changed, not by a how-to step, but by a life-changing, life-altering vision of who you are. And that's our prayer. So, Holy Spirit, it is your work, and we pray that you would do your work now in our hearts as we open the text of Scripture and behold the glory of God revealed there in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. One of the most important questions that you can ask, it, let me rephrase that. The most important question that a person can ask, the most important question humanity can grapple with, is the question of what is God like? The most fundamental, most important question in existence. What is God like? And through the thousands of years, there have been a multiplication of, of answers. One answer negates the question altogether. That is, there is a very small minority of people who go by the name of atheists who deny that God exists. Therefore, the question is an invalid one. Why ask what God is like? Because God doesn't exist. And there really are very few people who are actively and arduously um, believers and proclaimers that God does not exist. That kind of hardcore atheist, those kinds of hardcore atheists are, are very few in number. But their answer is to negate the question. There's another larger group of people who would answer the question, what is God like, um, with the answer, I don't know. We don't know. That is the agnostic, the one who says, I don't know. Now, they're saying by that, either we don't know that God exists or not, or if you believe there's a God, we don't know who He is. Some of my family members are 
are agnostics. That is, they believe that there is a higher power, we just can't know who he is. And so they kind of are in this I I don't know category. But then throughout the thousands of years that man has been worshiping, the vast majority of people believe that there is some kind of divine or divinity or divinities, and that at some level we may know him, or in cases of paganism, her. That is, there is an answer to the question. Now our culture would have us believe that the different religions of the world, which are basically different answers to the question, what is God like, that in substance they are the same with some superficial differences. That is basically, and this was the position of one of my relatives, listen, Dan, all world religions are essentially the same with minor and superficial differences. To me, that's like saying a hippo and a gerbil are the same. That is, they may have some similarities of heart and lung, but they are very and vastly different. Case in point, one of those views of God is the pantheistic view, pan meaning all and theism meaning God, that all is God. So that a tree, an aardvark, an ant, or a star, all of it is God and God is all and therefore the universe is eternal. Now that is a very different framework and understanding of God than a personal view of of God. Um, And leads to some different consequences in terms of who and what you worship. It's perfectly acceptable to worship Mother Earth or a tree because all is God, God is all. Very different. Or you come to another branch of of religion, polytheistic, poly meaning many, theistic meaning God, many gods, finds its um, contemporary expression in Mormonism, I think you could say, as well as Hinduism. That is, there are a multiplicity of gods with different characteristics, different personalities, and different purposes. Uh, Greek mythology is a reflection of polytheism, a very different view of God. Those, Those are two very different things. They are not superficially um similar. They are substantively similar. And then you have another major stream, the monotheistic faiths of Islam and Judaism and Christianity. That is the belief that there is one God that unifies, is the unifying center of all things and the origin of all things. But even amongst those, there are substantive differences. They are not superficially alike. They are substantively unalike. Um, Very, very different. And the God that is portrayed and revealed in Scripture is a God that is or may be known. That is, the Bible does provide an answer to the question, what is God like? Now, the picture in Scripture and the God of Scripture and what I'm about to say proceeds kind of on two basic assumptions. The first assumption is that God exists, that God is one, but He exists in three personas. That is the Trinitarian view of God. That's an assumption of the Scripture, as well as that the main purpose of God in creating everything and then after the fall redeeming all things, that His fundamental purpose was to display Himself. That is to make Himself known, to disclose Himself, so that His people, His children, might be able to answer the question, what is God like or who is He? Because God fundamentally desires to make Himself known so that we might personally and relationally love Him and adore Him and glorify Him. That is, the whole thrust of the Bible and the whole thrust of the God of creation and redemption is to be known, to make Himself himself known. Because God is, as you know, invisible. So this whole message is about the invisibility of God, but the God who then made Himself visible. Or we might put it this way, 
about a God who is unknowable making Himself known. Now the first part of the message kind of capitalizes on the mysterious invisibility of God and the second part deals with Him making Himself visible to us and how He does that. The first part is rather mysterious. The invisibility uh, of God. Now, unless you're a pantheist and believe that the tree is God, um, most of us, common sense and through experience, not to mention the Scripture, would say, yeah, we, we don't see God. He, he's invisible to our sight. Well, you can't look up his address in a GPS machine. You can't drive to his address, go to his door, knock on his house, and have him come and open the door and speak to him face-to-face with a conversation over Starbucks coffee. You, that's not our experience. God is invisible, and it's kind of, of course he is. I mean, no, no, duh, he's, God's invisible. You can't, you can't see him. And I remember as a kid growing up in the church that that truth that God is invisible used to frustrate me. Um, I, I, I had a, a friend, a, a little Japanese friend who was just a, a great, great guy, but he just happened to be Buddhist. His name was Clark Watanabe. Still don't forget his name because he was my first attempt at evangelism. And we would sit in lunch and I would say, Clark, man, you've got to believe in God. Now, at that point, I don't think I really believed in God, but I at least professed the faith of my parents. And I said, you've got to believe in God. And his, his response was always the same. And that is he said, why would I believe in something I can't see? He'd say, if God shows up right now and spanks me, I will believe that there is God. He actually, that's what he said. And I remember thinking, you know, in my heart of hearts, thinking, God, why, like, why don't you just show yourself? I mean, you know how many people would believe if you would kind of come out behind, from behind this cloak of invisibility you wear? People would believe in you if they could see you. So the invisibility of God used to frustrate me, and yet in as I progressed in my faith and I was converted later on, I came to see that the invisibility of God is part of the glory, the mysterious and infinite glory of who God is. So that it's not something to be frustrated over, but something to be embraced and savored. The invisibility of God. Paul writes this. This is the First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 text. And it's a, a doxology. That means it's a moment he stops in the letter just to praise God. That's what he does. He says in verse 17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I, I can understand the, the, the praise with to the king, now to the king, eternal. I mean, that's an attribute of glory. He's never ending, always is. Immortal, that is his life, never-ending life. But then you get to invisible, like what in the world are you talking about? The only God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. To Paul, the invisibility of God was something to be praised. It was something that, that caused him to worship. Now how can that possibly be? How can the fact that God is shrouded to us be something to be rejoiced in and praised? How does that really work? Well, I'd like to take a stab at answering that particular question. When I think of God's invisibility as it's presented in Scripture, I think there are two facets you have to keep in mind. There is what you might call the nature or essence of God, and then there is the, the character of God. Two interrelated and inseparable things, but I think to be distinguished. When you talk about the nature or essence of something, you're talking about what it is, what it is composed of or made of. I am obviously a man. I am human. In form, in substance, I am a human being. That's 
what I am. It defines me. That's my essence is, is, is a human. The essence of you is you are human. A male human or a female human. We are, at essence, humans. When it comes to God, the idea of essence in nature, I believe that God is completely and wholly different than anything we can see or touch in creation. And that nature or essence is completely unknowable. It is unknowable. When we think of a spirit, which is about the only word definition as to what God is made of, and I can't even say made of because He's not made. He is the uncaused cause. He is the uncreated creator. So He's not made, but the stuff that God is composed of, the closest thing we have is John chapter 4 when Jesus said God is spirit. He is spirit. That's what He is. But that begs the question, so what is spirit? Does that mean God is like us? Because we have a spirit and my spirit is invisible. If I died right now, my spirit would go to be with the Lord. I believe that. Is that the sense? God's spirit is invisible, so my spirit's invisible. Is, is his spirit the same as my spirit? And the answer is, in one sense, yes, they're both invisible, but in another sense, a deep and wholehearted no. My spirit, my being, my existence is dependent, derivative, it is changing, it is completely and utterly dependent moment by moment on someone else. That's my spirit. God's spirit, by contrast, is always self-sustaining, never diminishing, eternal. It is. It simply is. This, his, his, who He is in His nature, His essence, is, is completely other than anything we can know or understand. Let me try and put a little, I don't know, boggle your mind a little bit with, with thinking for a moment about the mind of God's Spirit. When we think of mind and thought or planning, we usually think in terms of layers of thought, of, of logic and, and process and anal analysis of thinking. So, for example, if you want to build a house, you know, you choose a piece of land and then you figure out what kind of house you're going to build. You sketch it out maybe and you figure out its dimensions and its proportions and its spaces and its functions. And then you figure out who and how are we going to do the infrastructure of plumbing and electrical and, and water and all of that stuff. Then you've got to figure out the time frame and who's going to do the building. There is, can be years going into the thought process of building a house. That is, our way of thinking requires time and sequence and process and analysis. We are not instantaneously and spontaneously brilliant. We have to add thought upon thought upon thought. I mean, the collective wisdom of humanity has taken thousands and thousands of years to build upon each other, and yet all of this is untrue of the mind of God. God is spontaneously and yet eternally brilliant. He doesn't have to contemplate, ponder, or think to build creation. It's not like God said, I'm going to spend the first two million years figuring out how I'm going to make a daffodil or how I'm going to make an elephant and an aardvark or a giraffe. He didn't have to. God has his thought, his mind is spontaneously yet eternally present. That is, can you imagine being spontaneously and eternally brilliant in all of your planning? You simply think and it is. That, that, that kind of thinking just defies human imagination and, and, and definition. That's because the mind of God, while it may be similar to ours, is wholly different. He is spontaneously eternal thought and wisdom. He doesn't have to give thought to things. He is. You understand? That, that just, that's how completely different He is. Or here's another one that kind of blows my mind when I think about it. In terms of thinking God filling the universe. When we think of the word filling or His presence um, 
not being able to be contained in the universe, we instantly think in created categories of space and dimension, as if God is somehow physically present. But that's to think in created terms. God does not have to be physically present in the whole universe to be present everywhere, which means He can be everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Now you say, what in the world are you talking about? And that is precisely the point. When you think about any aspect of the mind of God or the wisdom of God, you will in the end just throw up your hands and say, unbelievable. Because who He is in His essence and nature is the one true reality out of which our whole system was born and upon which it is sustained. It is the essence of God, the never-changing, never-ending, always-powerful fullness of God's nature in and of Himself. Everything rests on that one reality. And it is utterly indescribable to us. In one sense, unknowable to us in terms of who He is in His essence. That's why you read in the prophets, oftentimes when they're trying to describe God, they're grasping at straws. They're grasping at the words that humans have created and the created things to try and get some peak or glimmer as to who He is. So Isaiah in chapter 1, for example, is given this vision of God. And all he can use is the word like, like, like. I looked at the throne and the one on it was like sapphire. That's the best he could think of, sapphire. And the one sitting on it was like the Son of Man. He lacked verbal words to, be even, to, to even capture what he was saying or, or seeing. You have the same thing, of course, in Revelation chapter 4, when John is given this vast vision of God on the throne. He can't even describe him. All he says is the one who was sitting on the throne in his appearance was like, like Jasper. It's as if he was scouring human language for the best that the human language and the best that the created order and the best of creation could possibly give to give just minute descriptions of something that is inexplainable. That's why the Bible is full of words like, like. <coughs> it's full of metaphor. It's full of simile because we just lack the verbal ability to even capture who God is or what He is. That's why most of our words that try and um, label an attribute of God or put in the negative. You know, we talk about God as unchanging. That by itself is an incomprehensible concept. So we take the word change, which we do understand. I change, you change, politics change. And then we reverse it and say it's unchanging. It's not like that. Or we say God is immutable. We know what mutability is, something mutates and changes. We can't grasp what it is to not mutate, and so we're mutable, not change, and so we say, well, it's not like that, it's immutable. Or we say we, we can comprehend the end of something. We know there's the end of life, there's an end of a term or a season. We understand endings. And to, to try and grasp that God is never-ending, we have to say, it's not like that. It's never-ending, or it's, it's unending. That we, have, we lack the verbal ability, that is, the language of humans cannot bear the incomprehensible nature of who God is. Paul saw the invisibility of God, the infinitude of God, His essence and His nature as something to be worshipped. To the King, immortal and invisible. Now when I think about that, that doesn't confuse me. It doesn't bother me. It just reminds me that God is so far beyond what I can ask, imagine, or even think of Him. So far beyond. And it engenders in my heart the invisibility of God, a sense of awe 
and a sense of worship. And I think that's what compelled Paul in the middle of this letter to say to the king, immortal, invisible, or eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, praise, forever and ever. Amen. That's the, the invisible part of God, which is entirely mysterious to us. But the beauty and the wonder of God is that the invisible God who is shrouded in infinitude desired to make himself known to us. Now, we may never know what God is. And I am of the opinion that we will never know what God is. However, we may know who he is. Namely, this is the character part. Difference between character and nature. Of course, the character comes out of his nature. But we may, again, let me say this, never know what God is. But we may know by the Spirit of the living God who God is. Who he is. That's the heart and the pulse of the God of Scripture is to make himself known personally to us. And there are three primary ways that God has, if you will, unfolded himself before us or he has disclosed himself or he has put himself on display that we might know him some of these most of these you're familiar with but needed to be reminded of one way that god has spoken to us who he is is reflected in creation itself that is the creation as david says the heavens declare the glory of god there's a declaration taking place in everything around us But that revelation is a revelation by inference. That is, we may draw inferences based upon what we see as to who God is. In other words, who God is is reflected in what is created. In the same or similar way that I could walk into your house and I could know a lot about who you are by looking at the kind of furniture that you have, how messy or clean your house is, The books you have on your shelf tells a lot about a person. All I have to do, or how you've arranged things, if you've created or you've built your own house, I will know by going into your house and seeing, I will infer who you are. And I will probably be pretty accurate. Paul speaks of this revelation that we can gain by inference in a famous passage in Romans chapter 1, which I will read to you beginning in verse 20. Where he says... For since the creation of the world, God's invisible, there's that word again, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. Understood or inferred from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Men are without excuse because the creation itself is speaking loud and clear that there is a God. And it may be inferred, Paul argues, certain qualities about God. That is God's power and His nature. And I think by nature he has the idea that there is God and God is one. I mean, all of nature um, shows a certain harmony and and a oneness and a unity which reflects not many gods but a single and unified Creator. So I think Paul is saying, listen, we may infer from the creation, the masterpiece, something about the craftsman or the master. Namely, that there is a God that he is one, that he is powerful, not to mention wise. So there is, in everything we see around us, 
a testament, a revelation as to who God is. And for thousands of years, think about this, for thousands of years, regardless of one's religious persuasion, men have realized that creation reflects in some measure the divine. Now, they may have inferred wrong things from creation, but they understood that creation itself is a reflection of divinity. And it wasn't until the 19th century, with the insane rationality of Darwin, that that massive revelation was silenced. That God is saying He sets before us billions of little tiny wonders and grand wonders, saying, this is me, and all of a sudden the declaration of the heavens that declare the glory of God have been silenced by technical but foolish arguments. I mean, in the end, you know, you see a Dell computer and you turn it on or you open it up and you see the microchips and you see that it has function, that it works. You realize someone pretty smart created this. And yet somehow that common sense logic is bypassed. A, a, a common sense logic that people for thousands of years have believed. And all of a sudden this great revelation of who God is is silenced. And in many respects, I wonder how many of us pass by it day after day in our cars. The wonders of God displayed all around you. And we are so pressed in and burdened down by the pressures of the day that we rarely hear the voice of God speaking reflected in the nature around us. You know, I, I've had a pretty hectic, chaotic two weeks. At one point I told my wife, I said, you know, life is going so fast right now that I feel like I'm hanging on by my fingernails and I just need time to be with the Lord and to be rejuvenated in the Lord. And so this last week, I, I basically went to a sixth grade science camp with my son. I thought it was just going to be more busyness. But we went up to this place called Wolf Mountain with a hundred screaming sixth graders um, where I was going to be one of the counselors. Now, if I've never been a counselor at a camp before, and had I known then what I know now, I probably wouldn't have gone. That's, that's not entirely true. But I'll tell you what, I have newfound respect for those of you who go up to Hume Lake year after year with our kids. Because I was stuffed into a little tiny cabin with seven prepubescent sixth graders who haven't learned to shower yet. And the aroma of my cabin was a cross between steamed broccoli and fermented clams. And, uh, and it's just, I could feel it like leaving their bodies and sticking to mine. And I was given this, this little bed that's just a shade above five feet long. And, um, and a mattress that's probably been slept on by about a thousand schleppy boys, you know, and a plastic. And, and I remember the first night of sleep, my skin actually touched the, the mattress, and I just thought, oh. <laughs> and the mattress had been slept on so many times that all of the stuffing had gotten pushed to the outside. So I'm laying there thinking, I feel like a taco right now. It's like, just throw on some cheese and throw on some Tabasco sauce and some lettuce and feed me to the dogs right now. But uh, as, uh, as difficult as the sleepless nights were with uh, kids juiced up on lots of candy and telling your mama jokes, I, uh, I was rejuvenated. Not only because I got to spend some good time with my son and his friends, but um, the whole point of the camp was to, to introduce kids to intelligent design. 
and to show them that there's design, intricate designs all around them, that um, complex, interconnected designs that, that cry out, there's a creator, there's a designer. And we had classes on herpetology, which, by the way, is not the study of venereal diseases. And herpetology is the study of, of, of amphibians and reptiles. Then we had another class on ornithology, which is the study of birds. And then one evening, we just everybody laid out under the stars, and a gentleman pointed out Virgo and Scorpio and Ursa Minor and Major. And I'm laying under the stars, and I'm just thinking, yes, this is where I need to be right now. And I remember standing before a tree in which the man pointed up, the, the one who was leading the, the lecture, he said, up there in those holes um, are a group of birds. We call them the acorn woodpeckers. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of interesting. And he went on to say that one of the distinctive features of these birds, the acorn wo- woodpeckers, they are communal. They like drill into the holes of these rotted trees and they build little homes. And, and the females actually care for one another's eggs. So if one goes out and and goes for food or water, the other female will actually take care of and protect the other eggs. I mean, it's this little communal environment of birds. And then they drill holes into the tree and put all their food in there. And I'm just, I'm just there out of a busy life, just looking at one of the simple but the billions of wonders of an ingenious God. And I'll tell you what, just it, people want so much more of the Lord and more of the glory of God, but then we busy ourselves and we rarely take time to smell the flowers. You know what I mean? I mean, somehow in our crazy world, it is not just a suggestion or not just a positive thing. It's like an essential thing to silence one's life and allow what God is declaring through things all around you to fill you with the knowledge of the wonders of God. I need to be reminded of that all the time. That um, I need to make time for that. God has revealed himself in the masterpiece and the genius of creation if you take the time to look at it. But it's interesting, God was not content to leave us inferring knowledge about him from creation. Because there's another way or avenue of revelation, how God revealed himself, that is not by inference. That is, God broke through that chasm that separates his invisibility to visibility. He broke through and spoke. The God of Scripture is a speaking God. He's communicative and personal. That's, that's, that's what we have here is that God came to us, broke through the barrier of invisibility. He used our verbs and our grammar and He used our language, our idioms. He gave us visions. He gave us dreams. He gave us prophecies. And those words spoken from the mouth of God through dreams and visions and prophecies and poetry are collected into what we have now as the Scripture, as personal revelation. It's it reveals the personal heart of, of God. And, and most of us would subscribe to that doctrinally. This is the Word of God. And yet the way we act, I don't know that we really believe that. This is a window into the heart, the soul, and the work of who God is. And when you have a personal communication from someone you love and knows loves you, that personal communication becomes a treasure for you. What it brings to my mind is, is a, um, an experience of when I was six in which I lost my grandfather. 
um, six years old. He had a massive stroke, leaving him completely without speech and ability to walk. Six years old. You don't remember much, you know, before you're six. He died a couple years later. And, uh, and I get all my genes from him, you know. I get my height from him. I get my, um, my walk from him. I actually had someone stop me that I never knew and say, is your grandfather Ralph Scott Slight? And I said, how in the world did you know that? And they said, by the way you walk. I get my hairline from him. Thank you, Lord. That's... But I, but I felt, how do I say this without being a complainer and dishonoring the Lord? I, I felt cheated at that point. Because like, people would say, he's such a man of God. And they'd tell me stories and I thought, I wasn't there. I didn't get to know him. And since then, the Lord and I have I've confessed my bitterness. And I understand the Lord's timing is perfect, despite how I felt. But a couple of letters, a box full of letters emerged two years ago when my grandmother passed away. They were hidden in a dark closet. And they were love letters to my grandmother. And um, my mom said, Danny, you need to read these. And I, I pulled them open and I read them. And I read his terms of endearment for my grandmother, his passion, his love. And it was like the Lord gave me a little gift through these letters, a window into the soul of my grandfather. And it was, it was like I was starving and a meal was set in front of me. I just devoured the letters because I so much wanted to know the soul of someone whose genes I carry and whose faith I carry. And brothers and sisters, this is not a compendium of generic religious thought. It's not simply religious reflections by a bunch of dead guys. This is the personal communication of a loving and holy God to His children. That's what it is. It is a window into the soul, the compassion, the love, the faithfulness of the One who created us. That's what it is. And until we grasp that, we'll never love this enough to savor each word, each verse, each paragraph, each book, the whole thing. You see, God is a God who wants to make Himself known. He, he wrote it in the stars and He wrote it in the, in, the interconnected complexity of, of creation that screams out, here am I. He broke through the barrier and spoke. But even then, God's ultimate aim wasn't simply to give us spoken words, but in the end, to give us the living Word. <coughs> Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I'm going to back up to verse 13. Just listen. I have to back up to 13 so you understand who he's talking about. Most of you know this verse anyway. Where it says, For he that is God, the invisible God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into his kingdom of the Son he loves. That's Jesus. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then it goes on to say, <clears throat> He, that is Jesus, is the image of of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. I turn to John chapter 1. A very similar thing is said here in verse 14. Again, a verse that we use oftentimes at Christmas where it said the Word that is God's communication, His disclosure to us. It says, verse 14, the Word, it became flesh. That is, it lived. It wasn't now just the spoken word. Now that word lives in flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that, of course, is speaking of Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then you skip down to verse 18. And amazingly, 
mind-blowing verse which says this. It says, no one has ever seen God. No one. What Moses saw was the backside of a manifestation of God. He never saw God truly face to face at his essence. And yet it goes on to say, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. There is only one person who can mentally grasp the fullness of who God the Father is, and that is God the Son. He's the only one with the capacity to know the Father and the divinity fully. And it's him who comes down, that's what he says, who who makes the Father known in human flesh. That's, that's an amazing. No one has ever seen God but God the one and only. The only one who has seen God is the second member of the Trinity and He has come in human flesh, the Word that now lives in flesh to make Him the Father known to us. Again, it's reflected in Hebrews 1.3. I'll read it. That the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation, or the word is image, of his being. Now, many of us are familiar with the theology of these verses, but I think sometimes we fail to grasp how profound they are in the context of the entire canon, in specific, the Ten Commandments. Commandment number two. Remember what it is? Thou shalt make no graven image of me and bound out to it in worship. God prohibited the worshiping of images created by men. And yet it's precisely Jesus who is the image of God we are to worship. There's something in man that needs something tangible to worship because God Himself is invisible, so men would create things that they thought looked like God. And so they'd fashion things out of wood and stone. And most idols... They didn't believe were gods themselves, but representations of something they couldn't see because there's this inner desire for people to know and to touch what they want to worship or what they should worship. So they, they if you will, um, distort and, and bring God down to created levels and they form images, which God says, you are not to worship those images, but yet God in the fullness of time had as His intent to image Himself forth in a tangible form of His choosing in the highest of the created beings, namely human. So that for the first and only time, God welds Himself to creation in such a way that we may worship the image. That's how distinctive and how profound the Word becoming flesh or the fullness of God's radiance being represented in Jesus is to the Bible. God has had as His intent to invade our world, weld Himself to humanity so that we might see His face in the fullest way we can know. I think, my belief is, the closest we'll ever get to, we will ever get to seeing the infinitude of the invisible God is found right there in the one God imaged forth, namely Jesus Christ. See, that's, that's, that's what I, if you don't get anything else, that's, that is the heart and the thrust and the pulse of the God of Scripture. Not a God who wants to remain behind this veil of, 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 of invisibility, but a God driven by His love for His glory and love for His people decides not only to show Him, show us His glory in the infinite wonders of the universe, but also to speak to us and ultimately to become one of us so that we might know Him. So the, the Scripture is all about answering the question. 
What is God like? Well, this is what He's like. He's exactly like Jesus. Now, I can get my mind around that, at least at some level. He is the fullest expression of what I know to point out and say, that's what God's like. Because God wanted to make Himself known so that we might, by the Spirit, know Him, love Him, trust Him, worship Him, and one day become like Him. That's the God of Scripture. That's the answer to the question, what is God like? In the end, He's like Jesus. These are the avenues of revelation God has given to us. Others can seek other avenues, but God determines how and when and where He reveals Himself. And He revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that You would enable us through greater awareness of how vast Your invisibility at the same time, the great love that, and kindness that compelled you to come, that it compelled you to create a masterpiece of art and technology that we still can't figure out. That you're a God who speaks personally and a God who came personally so that we might know you, enjoy you, and glorify you forever and ever. Father, you are our one true joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.